Okay, so now, let's get into our teaching this morning. I don't know where we're at with our live stream, Facebook, YouTube, and all that, but we're officially starting the teaching now, by the way. And I mentioned to you several weeks ago that I wanted to read you this little article about the Galileans. We were talking about the fact that Jesus grew up in the region of Galilee and in Nazareth, a few miles to the west. All the disciples, except for Judas, interestingly enough, came from Galilee. And Jesus focused a great deal of his ministry in that region around the Sea of Galilee. So I wanted to read you this as a great little article, and it's entitled, The Amazing Galileans. Why is that there? Okay. It says, Jesus focused his ministry in one small place in Israel, Galilee in the three cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Although many people today assume that Galileans were simple, uneducated peasants who lived in an isolated area, the truth is they interacted more with the world than the Jews of Jerusalem. After all, the Via, Via Maris um, trade route passed through Galilee, exposing them to many different peoples and cultures. The Galileans were also the most religious Jews in the world during Jesus' time. They revered and knew the scriptures well. They were passionately committed to living out their faith and passing their faith, knowledge, and lifestyle to their children. This led to the establishment of vibrant religious communities, a strong, synagogue, strong synagogues, the community centers of the day. In fact, more famous Jewish teachers from Galilee came from Galilee than from anywhere else. The Galileans resisted the pagan influences of Hellenism, which is the Greek culture, for lo far longer than their Judean counterparts. And when the great revolt against the Romans and their collaborators finally occurred, A.D. 66 through 74, it began among the Galileans. Clearly God carefully prepared the environment in which Jesus was born and reared so that he would have exactly the context he needed in order to present his message of Malkut Shemaim, the kingdom of heaven, effectively. And so that people would understand and join his new movement. A deeper knowledge of Galilee and its people helps us understand the great faith and courage of Jesus' disciples who left Galilee and shared the good news with the world. Evidence indicated that Judas Iscariot was apparently the only non-Galilean among Jesus' twelve closest disciples. The disciples' courage, the message they taught, the methods they used, and their complete devotion to God and His Word were born in Galilee's religious communities. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in Your Word this morning. We thank You for blessing us with all of the books of the Old and New Testament, divinely inspired, God-breathed Scripture to lead us, to guide us, to light our way. Lord, please bless this study now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. Last time I was here, we covered the wedding feast at Cana and the Jesus turning the water into wine, his first public miracle, kind of a preemptive strike by his mother Mary to get him to do that. So in verse 12, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum. We just talked about Capernaum. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So after this, after the wedding feast, after Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine. By the way, I, as I was thinking back on that message, uh, even though I wouldn't have had time, there were things I wanted to cover regarding the miracle of the water into wine. There are a number of analogies concerning the water into wine event, which I would like to go back and cover right now. First of all, you may recall this, you probably do, Jesus promised living water to all who believe. Remember that? John 7, 38. Well, first of all, he had the encounter with the woman at the well, and he said, um, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water to drink. But here in John 7, 38, he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so there is that symbol with water of life, not just physical life, but spiritual life, eternal life. And then he related water to physical birth when he was speaking with Nicodemus, member of the Sanhedrin, who came to him at the nighttime. We'll get to that story pretty soon. John chapter 3. John 3, 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, second birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some identify this as water baptism, which we just talked about baptism a little while, a few minutes ago. But again, as we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, I tend to reject this interpretation that Jesus is referring to water baptism. Now there's another group, we're talking about different theological viewpoints, that sees this as the washing of water by the word, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he, Jesus Christ, might sanctify and cleanse her, the church. See, this is a tricky little passage. You have to read it carefully. Paul shifts gears. This passage, Paul is relating the, the earthly marriage relationship to our relationship with Christ as the bride of Christ. So he shifts gears from, in two verses here. He goes from talking about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church, but then he says that he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, the bride, us, with the washing of water by the word. So there's one of the reasons we need to be in the word. What does that mean anyway? We come on Sundays. This is important, I think. Come and sit under the teaching of somebody who hopefully is bringing you the truth. But we need, what, seven days without the word makes one week. W-E-A-K. The Word washes us. You sometimes just feel kind of dirty when you're out there in the world and there's all this weird stuff going on. And, and Jesus, remember, He washed the disciples' feet on the night of the Last Supper. Peter said, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. Good old Peter sticking his foot in his mouth again. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Oh, well, give me the whole bath. Mr. Extreme, right? Right? 
Peter? Jesus says, no, Peter, you don't need a whole bath. Why? Because Peter had already been cleansed. He was a believer. He'd, even though Christ had not yet died on the cross, by faith, Peter was already a believer in Christ, born again, washed. He said, you just need your feet washed. They wore sandals in those days, right? And they walked on dirt roads, and their feet got dirty. And it was a common practice for the servant of the household when someone came in from outside to wash their feet. And what Jesus was doing there, first of all, he was showing, being the example of a servant leader, humbling himself. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must become the servant of all. The first will be last, the last will be first. But he was also showing them that even once you've been washed by the blood of Christ, we still need a, a regular cleansing from the dirt and filth of this world. The Word of God, as we take time to read it, to ingest it and digest it, it has a cleansing effect in our lives. And so Paul says that Jesus purifies his church. He sanctifies, that means to set apart for God's holy purposes. That he, Jesus, might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. And so we've got multiple analogies here. I guess you could take your pick. But regardless, it would seem that the water into wine, at least from my perspective, signifies the new birth. The very first public miracle Jesus did was setting the stage for his message of rebirth, new birth, in Christ, water into wine. Thirdly, Jesus represented his gospel as new wine, the new covenant. Matthew 9, 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Anybody ever experienced that? Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. What he's talking about here, the new wine is unfermented, but as it, it sits there in the wineskin, it begins to ferment, and then begins to expand in the process. The old wineskins here are those who adhered to the old covenant, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they were unwilling to embrace the new covenant. They were the old wineskins, and so they couldn't receive the new wine. The new wineskins are those who embrace the gospel and the new covenant in Christ. And to be filled with the new wine is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm relating this all back to his first miracle, water into wine. Fourthly, Jesus identified wine with his blood, as you know, poured out for the sins of mankind. John 6, 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, wow, that threw people for a loop. A lot of people freaked out and stopped following Christ after he said that. God, oh, okay, this is an interesting thing. Do you know God will set you up 
I've experienced it in my own life. I've seen it in other people's lives. He will set you up to test you to see where you're really at and to show you where you're really at. I don't know if you're going to like this, but you know me, I'm so honest, it's ridiculous. I'm stupidly honest. While I was gone, struggling with not being here, honestly, I wanted to be here. I don't know if you like this either. I'll say this first. I have an amazing, wonderful, incredible wife, great kids, grandkids, love them all, thankful for them. But at this point in my life, there's only one reason that I exist, only one reason that I'm alive on this planet, and it's to do what I'm doing right now. Okay? Other than that, really, there's nothing. I don't, I don't even care to be here. Paul said that. He said, I would prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, but I have to preach the gospel. You know what? I now understand that better than I ever have in my whole life. While I was gone, again, I, I felt like the Lord told me that part of this whole thing was to test you guys. Were you going to stay faithful? Were you going to stay committed? Were you going to support Pastor Ed, Pastor Dave, Pastor Ted, all the servants that come every week and work hard to, to do what we're doing here, to give you, to bless you? From what I see today, I guess you've passed the test. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I told you before I left, I said, you know, my retirement's in your hands. If I come back and the church is empty, then I guess that's my answer. But thank you for all being here today, okay? But God will, but just be aware of that because a lot of times we want to blame the devil on things that God is doing. Do you know that? You see, the devil can't do anything to you without God's permission. Do you know that? So we don't have to fear him. We don't have to worry about him. He's got to go through God to get to you, and if God allows it, it's for his purposes. But please be aware of that. So many people are confused with this idea that if I'm really right with God, my life will be perfect. Are you kidding me? Uh, Jesus went to the cross. Hello? the perfect sinless son of God. All the apostles except for John died a martyr's death, beheading, crucifixion, stoning. Really? Gee, those guys must have not had enough faith. You ever heard that teaching? Just be aware of this, folks. God doesn't set you up because he's a meanie. He sets you up because he loves you. It's part of that whole idea of trials and testings for the perfecting of our faith, our strengthening. James chapter 1, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces perseverance and endurance. God wants you to make it to the finish line. He's your own personal trainer, okay? If we go through life and we're just kind of taking our faith very lightly, nonchalantly, you know, just like the couch potato Christian. You might not make it to the finish line. He who endures to the end will be saved. 
and God wants you to endure to the end. Okay? So he will set you up. And don't go blaming the devil on it because God's trying to get your attention. He's trying to teach you something. He's trying to show you something. Because we can, you know, I've said this before. There is no deception more powerful than self-deception. And God wants to wake us and shake us and get us out of that self-deception. All right. Where were we? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Luke 22, 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper. This is where we get the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion from. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The wine, water into wine. Another interesting side note that's not even in my notes. When Jesus died on the cross and they wanted to make sure he was dead, and they thr the soldier thrust the sword in his side, pierced his side, out came blood and water separately. Interesting. There is a medical explanation for that too. I forget what it is at the moment, but I know there is one. Number five, this is our final point. Jesus said he would not partake of wine again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's our marriage supper with Jesus in heaven. Matthew 26, 27. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, in my Father's kingdom. So as we can see, Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine, was rife with symbolism, all of which really is very important. I just wanted to share those things with you this morning. I'm going to move on, see how far we can get before time runs out. So after this, he went down to Capernaum. His mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So they went the distance, about 12 miles um, east from Cana to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, all five of those disciples were from Capernaum. I've been there several times. It's a really cool uh, excavation. You can see the remains of the synagogue there. There's a place that they've identified as what was supposedly Peter's house. But five of the disciples were from Capernaum. They went there. That's where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, remember? They're in Capernaum. Notice he went, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, all of whom had attended that wedding feast together. I was reminded of a song, Wherever Jesus went, the lambs were sure to go. And they are sure. Yes, first it tells us he went down. And then it says, followed by his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And folks, that's how it should be. He should always be the leader. We should always be following him. But they didn't stay there many days because Jesus had some work to do in Jerusalem. First of all, it was Passover coming up. This would be the first Passover that Jesus would attend after launching his public ministry. 
And this next section involves one of those really well-known Bible stories, the cleansing of the temple. Verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Up because Jesus, even though Galilee is north, Jerusalem is at a higher altitude, somewhere around 3,000 feet, if memory serves me correctly. Now that not sound much to you and I, because we live at 5,000 feet, but Galilee is actually like several hundred feet below sea level. So he went up to Jerusalem. How appropriate that Jesus, the Passover lamb, would attend the Passover in Jerusalem. As you know, all Jewish males were required to attend this feast. This was the first feast after Christ's baptism. The second feast is mentioned in Luke 6.1. The third in John 6.4. The fourth, which was that at which he was crucified, John 11.55. So Jesus, after launching his public ministry, attended four Passover celebrations prior to his crucifixion. Verse 14, he found in the temple those who had sold oxen and sheep and doves. As you know, the people were required to make sacrifices, and it was based on how much they could afford. If they were a little more well-off, they could buy an oxen or a sheep. The poor people could only afford the doves, and so they had the whole range there available for them. He found the, those who sold auctions, sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Now, money changers were there. They were needed to standardize foreign, because they had Jews coming from all over Asia Minor, Greece, people, all the Jews came from far away for the Passover. And they had different currencies, different coinage. So they would standardize the foreign and the Galilee currencies into coinage, useful to the sellers of the sacrificial animals. But the money changers were dishonest men who used this as an opportunity for profit turning the worship of God into a business. Sadly, many today are doing the same thing. Merchandising God with a lot of promotion and hype. You know, send in your, your donation, I'll pray for you. I'll send you a prayer cloth. You can wrap it across your body and be healed and so forth. Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. The whip was considered an emblem of authority and it was also, obviously, he constructed it out of some type of reed or rope material that was there. It was for the purpose of driving the temple, from the temple, the cattle, oxen and the, and the sheep which had been brought there for sale. And he drove them all out of the temple. This I mentioned is the first, well no I didn't mention this. There's actually two cleansings also. This is the first cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other three gospels record a second cleansing that happens at the last Passover prior to Jesus' crucifixion. And in that second cleansing, he becomes even more passionate, more enraged and incensed at what they're doing. Not that he's not enraged and incensed here. 
So he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So he evicted the people as well as the livestock. And he poured out the changers' money, overturned the tables. Jesus didn't harm anyone, by the way. There's no record of that. But he did make a very powerful public statement. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. So the larger animals he drove out with the, with the whip. The doves would have been in cages and needed to be removed by those selling them. You know, 900 years earlier, I just realized I'm hot. I've been hot. When you're hot, you're hot. Okay. 900 years earlier, David had some profound things to say about sacrifice. You can imagine the, the outrage that the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Levites were probably really, really incensed at what Jesus was doing. Well, listen to what David had to say. Psalm 51, 14. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet regarding his sin. David not only committed adultery, he sent her husband Uriah to the front of the battle in the hopes that he would be killed, which he was. So David was also now a murderer. And yet the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Does that compute to you? You've got to really understand the heart of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God to understand how David could ever be called a man after God's own heart. But guess he was. That should give you great hope. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, to the world that doesn't make sense. But there's really nothing about God, His creation, His Son Jesus Christ, His perfect sinless life, His sacrifice on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. Nothing about that makes sense to the world. Paul said to them, it's foolishness. But to those of who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. Here's what David said. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Not the bloodshed that he uh, encountered in battle, but when he had Uriah killed. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. David couldn't just make it all go away and be better by killing a goat or a sheep or an ox. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's what is required for us to come before God to enter into right relationship with Him. Some people think they can buy their way into heaven with money, with acts of kindness, philanthropy, so forth, by doing religious things like taking communion and being baptized. We cannot earn our way into heaven. What re it's required is a broken spirit, humbly coming before God, and admitting, yes, God, I am a vile, wretched sinner. Everything within you tries to block that. No, no, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy or that gal. 
Don't block it. Embrace it. Embrace your brokenness so that God can make you whole. David knew this. The answer was not trying to buy favor with God. It was by coming before him in humility and brokenness. Repentance. And so there was no problem with Jesus driving out all these animals. And then Jesus goes on. He says, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You might be familiar with that modern term, merch. A lot of ministries today have merch. I'm not knocking all of it. It's fun to have a t-shirt or something like that or CD or whatever it might be, a book. But these guys had turned God's house into a house of merchandise. Now Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house because within the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was allowed to go and only once a year to make atonement, the Day of Atonement, you probably already know this, but I think it's pretty interesting that it's said that they would tie a, tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement in case um, something was amiss and he stopped breathing and they would drag him out. I don't know if it ever actually happened, but that's it said what they did. So the Holy of Holies was where the very presence of God dwelt. Now you may remember, we'll probably have to finish this next week. You may remember that when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. We're told in the Gospels that the curtain dividing the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. Now how did that happen? God reached down out of heaven and he ripped it in two saying that now all may enter into my presence. Today, every believer, by the way, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence dwelling within each one of us, and yet how often do, do we defile his temple? But thank God for the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from any and every sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I, I pray this scripture on a regular basis. Verse 9 in particular. If we say that we have no sin, here's that broken spirit, that contrite heart, that humility. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The devil wants you to hide your sin. He wants you to ignore it, pretend it's not there. We're, we're ashamed of it or probably should be. But God says, confess it and I will heal you. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you. We fear exposure, but exposure is good. If we have some kind of an illness, now some people will try to ignore it, right? Pretend it's not there. It's called Christian science. I had an aunt that many years ago that died from cancer. She was a Christian scientist. That is a religious group, you know, a cult, if you will. And they don't believe in any medicine. 
they believe in divine healing, which, I mean, does happen, can happen. God does heal, but he also uses doctors and medicine and all kinds of stuff. And she kept denying. <laughs> it's very similar. You see, there's, a, there's an interesting correlation between the faith teachers, the Copelands, the Hagans, the Benny Hens, and so forth. There's a direct correlation between them and the Christian scientists because they both deny being sick, even when you're sick. To deny being when you're sick, when you're sick, is stupid. Stupid. Okay? It needs to be exposed so that it can be healed. If we, have, we say we have no sin, we're stupid. We deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, and you're not telling God anything he doesn't already know, but he wants you to know. You're telling him what he already knows, but it's important for you to know it too. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is a quote from Psalm 69.9. I'll read verses 8 and 9. Psalm 69.8. I become a stranger to my brothers. This is a prophecy about Jesus, by the way. And an alien to my mother's children. His brothers didn't even receive him until after he died and rose, risen from the dead. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you, Father God, have fallen on me. So the disciples, when the moment Jesus said that, this scripture came to their mind. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The Greek is zealos. It means boiling. So if someone is referred to as being zealous for the Lord, that means you're on fire for God. Boiling over. Jesus was boiling over with passion. This is Webster 1828 definition of zeal. Passion. Jesus was boiling over with passion for the holiness and the sanctity of his Father. Which was rarely observed in those circles there in Jerusalem. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, okay, prove to us through some miracle that you have the authority to behave this way. Who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right to come in here and run out all the animals and the people and overturn the money changers' tables? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In the Hebrew, it's tov, valov, tov. It means this very temple. And there are those who suspect Jesus may have been pointing to his own body at the time. Destroy this temple. They didn't get it. Three days, I'll raise it up. Did he do that? By the way, did you know that Jesus raised himself from the dead? Don't try that at home. Only God can do that. 
Only God can raise himself from the dead. Pretty cool. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. See, they, they didn't get it. The 46 refers to the time it took for Herod the Great to expand and beautify Solomon's second temple, which was very simple and basic. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, completely destroyed Solomon's temple, which was a beautiful temple. When the people came back from exile, they didn't have the manpower or the resources to restore it to its original condition, so they just built a very simple, basic temple. When Herod came into power, he decides he's going to really deck it out. There were many groups within Judaism that expected a new or transformed temple, but the old temple was one of the most magnificent buildings in, in antiquity, the symbol to which the rest of Judaism looked to most Jews and especially to the aristocracy who controlled Jerusalem's temple. Jesus' words here would have sounded blasphemous. Herod the Great began the work on the temple in 20 to between 20 and 19 B.C. and work continued until A.D. 64. Its 46th year mentioned here places Jesus' words in A.D. 27. As we've talked about before, the calendar's off by about three years. Uh, we believe that he entered Jerusalem on the donkey April 6th, 30 A.D. Verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. At this point, probably no one, including the disciples, understood what he meant. Therefore, verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So after he was risen, it wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples figured it out. But notice something, folks. That didn't stop them from following him throughout his entire earthly ministry and then throughout the rest of their lives until they were martyred for their faith. My point is this. They didn't fully understand all things then. And as time went on, they understood more and more. But we will not, we do not, and we will not understand everything in this life. That's where faith comes in. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes, We walk by faith, not by sight. God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. He's given us everything we need to know in order to be saved, to be born again, to be filled with the Spirit, to receive the precious gift of eternal life. But there are some mysteries that will not be made known to us until we see him face to face. We are going to finish, by the way. It could be a few minutes over, but I think I get bonus time, right? For being gone. John 2.23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So during the first Passover of his public ministry, Jesus went around Jerusalem doing what Jesus does, performing miracles. I have a whole long list of miracles in my life. I hope you do too. You should, because God is constantly doing miracles. We just need to be looking for them, recognizing them, embracing them. It could be something as simple as finding your lost car keys. 
and it can be things a lot bigger than that. I had a miracle on the way to Arizona for my reunion, but I won't take time to share that right now. All right. Not that he had anything to prove, folks. That's not why he did it. He does it because he loves his people. Mark 1, 40 through 41. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper didn't question his ability to heal him. He said, If you're willing, Jesus, I know you can make me clean. Jesus moved with compassion. Not thinking, oh, wow, here's another opportunity to prove to everybody that I'm the Messiah. No. He was moved with compassion. Jesus' heart broke for the people because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He came to be the good shepherd. Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. So Jesus, after his encounter there in the temple, spends the rest of that Passover season in Jerusalem probably healing the sick, casting out demons. We aren't given specifics, but he was doing many signs. Verse 24, but Jesus, this is very interesting, these last two verses. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. What does this mean? The word translated commit here is the same which in John 2.23 is translated believed. It means to put trust or confidence in. Jesus did not necessarily believe that these people were sincere. He didn't put his trust and confidence in the people because he knew their belief at this point was superficial, a result of witnessing his miraculous power. They had no concept of their need for confession and repentance of sin, their need for a spiritual savior. They were looking for a Messiah who was more like Santa Claus or a Disneyland daddy. And so he had no need that anyone should testify of man. And a lot of people get sucked into that, by the way. I was so close to finishing. <laughs> they get sucked into that same mentality. If you become a Christian, you'll be healthy, wealthy. You know, you'll have the most... Um, hunky husband in the world. You'll have the most gorgeous model-like wife in the world. You will live in the nicest neighborhood in the biggest house. You will have any car you want. Oh, that makes me want to throw up. God is not Disneyland daddy. He's not Santa Claus. But he is the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. He had no need that anyone should testify of man. Nobody needed to say, oh, Jesus, you better watch out for that one. He's not trustworthy. She's a deceiver. Look out, Jesus. Now, he knows all things. He knows the human heart, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew and knows what is in the heart of every human being. Jeremiah 17, 9. You ever hear people say, well, I just follow my heart. I don't recommend that. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Now God can give us a new heart. Yes, and he does. Who can know it? Jesus knew what was in man. 
The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. You can't fool God. He knows all. That old saying, you can fool some of the people some of the time, you can't fool all the people all the time. You can't fool God any of the time. So guess what? The best thing to do? Come clean and practice what we read in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. I'm going to read that as we close. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that promise. I bank on that promise. How about you? Let's stand. <coughs> I'm going to lower the lights a little bit, get ready for our last praise song. And as we go to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask for a show of hands for those who have a prayer request today. Please raise your hand, and God sees your hand. That's the most important thing. He sees those hands. He knows what's on every heart and every mind. We bring these things before you now, Father. Lord, some have health issues. It might be for themselves. It might be for someone else, someone near and dear to them, a family member, a friend, a neighbor. Lord, we lift up those health issues to you. Father, we acknowledge these bodies are temporary. They will not last forever. But Lord, we do thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. And we, we ask for healing, Lord, for whether it be for allergies or sinus, whatever it might be, Lord, for heart problems, Lord, for lung problems, for cancer. Lord, we love you no matter what, but we do ask to hear our cry and pour out your healing on your people because as we saw this morning, you have compassion for us. You care about us. Lord, we ask that you would just... Bless those here today or those that they are representing with a healing touch from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for those with mental and emotional issues as well. Those can be just as devastating, if not more so. We pray for healing of hearts and minds. Lord, deliverance from anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. God, just minister to each one, I pray. Give them comfort. Give them peace. Lord, you said that you would give us peace, not as the world gives, but true inner peace, freedom from these things. You came to set the captives free. Father, we pray for deliverance for those struggling with these mental and emotional issues. In Jesus' name. Lord, we pray for relationships, friendships, marriages, work relationships, ministry relationships. Lord, anywhere and everywhere that we may be having problems getting along with someone, understanding someone, having them misunderstand us. We pray for healing, for restoration of relationships that have been damaged or broken, that marriages could be healed, friendships could be healed, and help us to be peacemakers. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to be the first ones to reach out and initiate peaceful restoration and reconciliation in Jesus' name. And then finally, Lord, we lift up very real physical needs that we have in this life. Lord, we know there's a lot of things that we might consider to be needs that really aren't. They're just things that we want. But Lord, we ask that you would provide us with those things that we need as you promised that you would. Lord, our, 
our shelter, our clothing, our food, the necessities of life, and God, give us wisdom on how to manage our resources in a way that will bring honor and glory to you. Lord, give us the faith of that woman who put her little widow's mite in the offering. That was all she could give. But you considered that to be a greater gift than the man who was wealthy and just dropped in an average amount. So, Father, guide us, direct us, give us wisdom. Help us to trust you, to look to you. You are a provider no matter where our paycheck comes from. Ultimately, you are a provider, and we know that you can provide any way you choose to do so. We thank you and praise you for salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you thank you for the water into wine, for the new birth, for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, for the precious gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Please receive now our final offering of praise, Lord. Amen.